Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Well, take your Bibles, open them to the book of Hebrews, which is toward the end of the New Testament, right before James, as we learn about the superiority of Jesus, how important he is, and you could say even more important than anything related to God. You know, shadows really never measure up to the reality. There are no details with shadows. There's not an exact match. Shadows are dark and a poor representation of that which is casting the shadow. And it's foolish for us to desire the shadow more than the substance. We, well, you know, when you think of, when you think of shadows, I, I can't help but think of how dogs will chase after their shadow. Very similar to what they chase after their tail. They just get into the groove, and in their mind, you can just kind of see in their eyes, they, they don't quite know what that is. They don't understand what it is, and they keep chasing and keep chasing, and they never really get to the place where they realize they're never going to catch their shadow. They're never going to catch up to it. And even as they chase their shadows, they're never, never satisfied. I can say that over the years, many a follower of God have chased after shadows when it comes to the things of God, shadows. For, for definition, let's think through this for a moment. Shadows are a mere reflection of reality. Shadows are a mere reflection of reality. It was to the Gentile church that Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He said, Don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so if you're taking notes, let's take notes and let's take note of the shadow and the substance. When you think of shadows, when it comes to God, think of shadows this way, religion and rituals. Now, while our focus in Hebrews will be to those, those Jewish believers of the first century don't think for a moment that the relevance of the book doesn't speak to us today. Where many a man or woman are chasing after shadows through religion and rituals, and that's where they stop, going through the motions. When you think of shadows, think of religion, think of rituals, think formalism and habits that may have some spiritual definition, but they fall so short of reality. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. The importance of Bible reading. So important, reading your Bible. The, 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 the emphasis of the Bible, you'll never know it unless you read it. But, but reading the Bible can become a shadow in your life. It can become ritualistic. It can actually, reading the Bible can actually become a burden to you. Like it's so much, so hard for you. And then it becomes a spiritual habit so that you read the Bible, maybe you get up in the morning and you know you got a busy day, you got a lot going on, and so you open up the Bible, you crack it open, read it through, and, and you're really not 
you're really not going after the substance when it comes to the Bible. You're stuck on the words on a page. You're stuck on the formalism. You're stuck on, well, the thought that maybe you're going to see someone later in the day that's going to ask you about your Devo life or what you learn in Devos. And, and so you went through real quick so you can check off the box and so you can say that you did it, and yet you're stuck in the shadows. It's just a mere representation of what God had for you when you open up the Bible. When you think of shadows, think of religion and formalism and habits. When you think of substance, when you think of substance, think of relationship and intimacy. Think of freedom and grace and mercy and worship. Just like Paul's telling the Colossians, he says, you're, you're getting up in, in what you should drink, and you're getting up in the Judea, the, the, the old festivals, and you, you're thinking that's where the substance is, but they're just shadows. They're just pointing you toward the substance, and the substance of your relationship and mine is Christ. It's what the Colossians were dealing with. It's what Jewish believers are de- dealing with in Hebrews, and it's what many people deal with today. It can be a little difficult for us here in the 21st century to enjoying the grace of God, enjoying a church setting relating you know, to loving God and having a fullness or a growing fullness of who Jesus is in our lives. It can be difficult for us in the 21st century to transport ourselves back to the first century or the first couple of centuries of it, the Christianity in its infancy, in its very beginning. There seems to be a, a distance between us by not only years, but by relationship and by action, especially in the Western church, especially in the church of the United States and where we've started and where we're heading. You see, the first century Jewish person that placed their faith in Jesus Christ came from a religious system that contained very precise laws and requirements and sacrifices and rules very precise, that they would, those that would embrace their Jewish Messiah did so having been convinced of the Holy Spirit that he fulfilled over 300 prophecies or predictions of his coming. And they embraced him. They, they left behind Judaism and the formalism, but many people brought it with them. As a matter of fact, if you read carefully in the book of Acts, especially when it comes to Acts chapter 15, the battle over what to do with Gentile believers. What are we going to do as the church now is expanding beyond the Jewish population on into the rest of the known world at the time? That's what the, book of, that's what the, the chapter 15 of Acts is all about. Settling, will they be, do we require them to be circumcised and follow the law or not? And the decision that day could have relegated Christianity to just be another sect within Judaism, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and could have been a third category, Christians. But you recall that was not the coming of Messiah's purpose or plan at all. It was not God's plan in the larger scope of what he was doing on the earth today. You see, when a believer in the first century embraced Messiah, they truly experienced the loss of everything. It was that type of decision. Today we equate receiving Jesus Christ with the gaining of things, when at the same time God is also calling you to the loss of many things. 
for a Jew in the first century, for them to embrace their Messiah was to lose everything. It, it was seen by your family that you defected, that you betrayed the family and you betrayed your upbringing. You would have to face the, the despising of your family and your friend, the abandonment of your friends and your culture, and it provided... See, the environment of losing everything, losing your job, losing your family, losing your identity, even though you are progressing forward in the fulfillment, the shadows becoming the substance, for those that rejected Messiah, they also rejected you that followed, and you would lose everything. I have to say, both then now, both then and now, the thought of losing things is a great motivation to turn your back on Jesus Christ. I mean, for them, as we get into the book of Hebrews, you will see that there was a great temptation to go back to Judaism, the formalism of the old covenant, and embrace that for the sake of gaining back their family and their friends and what they believe is their identity. But the same is true today. As you begin to lose friends, and you begin to lose influence, and you begin to lose what you so treasured and valued, there's a great temptation. Jesus put it this way. He said that the cares and concerns of life ripped out that seed of the gospel that was planted into your life. Because we live in a very affluent culture. We live in a culture that, that values things and possessions. And we live in a place where, there, where it may not be going back to the shadows of the formalism of any kind of religion, it is going back to the shadows of things that simply don't satisfy. And you'll see that throughout. The Hebrew believers that he's writing to were greatly tempted to go backwards, to go back to what was normal for them, what was familiar for them. And one of the overwhelming themes, for those of you taking notes, one of the highest level themes in the book of Hebrews is simply the superiority of Jesus Christ. Or, as we're learning, and we'll see this phrase, I'll use this phrase constantly because it'll help you remember, the value of substance over shadow. Or, the supremacy of the new covenant replacing the old covenant. Jesus came in to do a new work to fulfill all that God desired. As one commentator put it, from Adam to Moses, through 2,500 years, from Moses to Malachi, through 1,100 years, the prophets were speaking for God to man. But at the end of the 3,600 years, their revelation of God was only partial, only partial. Then after a silence of 400 years, that's the, that's the time between Malachi and the book of Matthew, a silence of 400 years, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, and in that son, the revelation of God is perfect. Notice with me verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he was by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. 
The superiority of Jesus, the substance, the new covenant over Judaism, the shadow, and the old covenant. Now what I find fascinating as we open up a new book of the Bible is that hundreds of years ago there was a lot of debate going on within the western side of the church over the book of Hebrews. Why? Well, there has been a concerted effort that is still with us today for those within the church to somehow usurp the place of Israel in the heart of God. You may hear this as something known as replacement theology. And it's simply this. The idea or the teaching, which I believe to be false, is that the church has replaced Israel in the heart and the plan of God. It's a very prevalent doctrine, very popular. You see, hundreds of years ago when the birthing of this took place, the church wanted to usurp the place of Israel, so naturally they rejected a book, Hebrews, they rejected Hebrews, a book that's so steeped with God's plan for the Jewish people, for Israel. They adopted all of the promises of God that made to Israel, and they spiritualized them, applying them to themselves as theologians and rejecting God's eternal purposes with Israel. They denied the fact that God would restore Israel. Now, you happen to be listening to a Bible study, and you happen to be a part of a church that does not believe that the Bible teaches that at all. We believe, along with Paul the Apostle, and along with the heart of God, that God is not done with the nation of Israel, and that the church has not replaced Israel. They are two distinct entities. Actually, if you want to write it down, there are three distinct people groups that the Bible mentions specifically as it relates to the eternal plan of God. Now, there's a lot of different people groups and nations and such, but three distinct people groups as it relates to the salvation plan of God. Number one, there is the nation of Israel and all of its divisions, as we're learning on Wednesdays, Judah, Israel, all of its divisions, the nation of Israel. That's God's heart, his people, number one. Number two, there is the Gentile world. The Gentile world. That would be everyone outside of being Israeli or Jewish. All of that, pretty much most of us are Gentiles. Most of us. There are a few that aren't, but most of us are Gentiles. So you have Israel, you have Gentiles, and then there's a third entity, and that is the church. And the church is made up of redeemed Jews and Gentiles. It's a whole different entity, not replacing the Gentiles, and not replacing the Jews. And so, this replacement theology, if you want to look for the, if you, if you want to hear or listen for the fancy theological word, it's called supersessionism. Supersessionism. And basically, it still exists today. And quite frankly, it's gaining a greater popularity. It exists today within Reformed theology, within Calvinism, much of Lutheranism, and other offshoots theologically. I believe it to be unbiblical and untrue. And although much of the anti-Semitism has been dispersed among many evangelical movements, many of the mainline denominational churches still advocate to this day an anti-Jewish sentiment. You have to understand, don't think of the political positions of Israel today representing the exact heart of God. 
That's simply not true. It's the same with our own country. You can't think of the political positions of our own country and various politicians represent the heart of God. What represents the heart of God? His Word and the revelation of Jesus Christ. That represents perfectly the heart of God. So in your mind, don't think of the political positions of a country having exact representation of... I mean, if you study through, if you look through with the life of David and then on to Solomon and then the divided kingdom, I mean, this isn't new. Political positions don't necessarily represent the heart of God. But Jesus does. And as you look to today where the place of Israel is, let me show you something. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. This is so important as we step into Hebrews that that we we must be reminded of the essential plan of God for the nation of Israel. We must be reminded. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, we gain the heart of Paul the apostle. And he asked the question that all of us must answer today. And and this question is simple. He says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? And what was his answer? Certainly not. That's the strongest way that you can say no in the Greek language. Has God cast away Israel? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not, verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. In asking the question, Paul answers it. No way. Strongest possible way to say no. It's forceful and absolute. May it never be so. God has not. Though some today would say that God is done with Israel, pulpits across the land are filled with men and a few women that teach that God is done with Israel nationally, and permanently. They say in a very simple way. It's a much deeper argumentation, but in a very simple way, this is what they say. Since Israel rejected their Messiah, that's it. They don't get, their, they don't get a chance. And therefore, God has now in his plan, according to their teaching, the church replaces Israel in all the promises of God. <clears throat> now, a careful study of the scriptures both Old and New Covenant. It's much easier to see in the New Covenant, but a careful study through the Scriptures, even in the Old Covenant, show the eternal plan of God for Israel. Jot it down again. Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39 are just four pieces of evidence that show the eternal plan of God for the nation of Israel. They talk and teach us about Israel and the restoration in the future. In chapter 36, it speaks of a land that's blossoming and fruitful. And did you know today that the land of Israel has so much fruit and vegetables growing that they are one of the chief exporters of fruit and vegetables around the world? That little strip of desert for so many years forsaken by so many today is one of the chief exporters of vegetables and fruit primarily to Europe but around the world. Chapter 37 Ezekiel speaks of the vision of the dry bones coming back to life. And don't we all, aren't we all encouraged by that vision, both on, on just on a personal level, that what you think is lost and what you think is done, God can bring back to life. Well, the vision was for the nation of Israel, primarily. And he looks out and he sees the bones come to life. And do you know it was on May 14th, 1948, when God brought about the regathering of the Jews into the land and and the nation of Israel was once again proclaimed a sovereign state within the world today. People are still, Jews are still arriving from around the world yearly 
proclaiming Aliyah to come home as God draws them from all the nations. We don't find today a Moabite nation. If you do, let me know. There's not a Jebusite nation. There's not a Canaanite nation. But there is Israel. And you can visit there with us in just a couple weeks if you're on our trip. We'll be taking a plane ride to visit the land and see the very places that are proclaimed in the Scriptures. Greek today, the Koine Greek of the New Testament, is actually a dead language. But did you know that Hebrew is still spoken of, alive and well, spoken of around the world? Why? Because God brings life to dry bones, the nation of Israel. Chapter 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, and this is very brief summary, but chapter 38 and 39 speak of the future of Israel and how there'll be an invasion from the north. Perhaps Russia and China, all sorts of predictions. God has future plans for Israel. As we look ahead in Revelation chapter 7, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will go forth proclaiming the gospel on the earth. They'll be sealed and protected and will be powerfully effective. God will again turn his attention in the last seven years of human history, commonly known as Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation period, the day of the Lord. God will turn his attention again to the nation of Israel nationally and fulfill his promises to them, leading up to Revelation chapter 20 and the millennial reign of Christ literally on the earth. And Paul's first piece of evidence in Romans chapter 11 is himself. Himself. He says, if God is done with Israel as it's been taught even in the first century, then why am I saved? Why did my life get transformed? And everyone would would know Saul of Tarsus' testimony. He created such havoc in the church. He, He created such damage to people's lives. He believed it was his responsibility uh, as a good Hebrew to destroy the church single-handedly. And he asked, why did God save me if he's done with Israel? Why would he give me such a love for my fellow Jew, sharing with them the glorious news of Messiah? And then he begins to turn, as in the rest of the chapter, of biblical examples of God's faithfulness. And as we come to Hebrews, there is much debate, and even there is today, over so many things related to Hebrews, which is unfortunate because whenever we choose to argue about something, we almost always lose the significance of what we're arguing about. I mean, think about some things in your life, some arguments that you get into that at the end of them, you kind of get to the place, even you know, this happens a lot in marriage, where we're arguing, 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 and at the end of it, we're like, what were we arguing about? I, I don't know, we lost, it got lost. And all, you know, we were, we were so caught up in trying to make our point and so caught up in trying to win that point that we forgot exactly what was the point. And that's so true in the body of Christ. That, you know, one other, if you want to jot it down, another big argument about the book of Hebrews is who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Debates reage throughout Christianity on who might be, and so many options are involved. You know, some people think Peter, some people think Apollo, some people think Barnabas, Paul, others. But in reality, it doesn't matter which human author, because we know ultimately that the author of the scriptures is who? God himself. So whatever human instrument that he chose to inspire the book for us today is really secondary to remembering that God is the author of the Scriptures, not man. We know that God used a believer under divine inspiration to write a note of encouragement 
and correction to a suffering, persecuted group of Jews somewhere outside of Israel. God is the author of scriptures, not man. You see, Bible, the Bible itself is an autobiography of God. It's his revelation of who he is. It was intended for us to get to know him better so that we might trust him more and enjoy intimacy and relationship with him. See, from Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing himself. We know God only because he's revealed himself. If God never chose to reveal himself, we wouldn't know him. We would only have hints of who he is through creation, through conscience, through the law, the legal system, understanding right and wrong. When Jesus spoke of the one that would betray him in chapter 13 of John, he appealed to the scriptures. Notice, listen, in John 13, verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, and now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. The scriptures were written. Jesus says something ahead of time. Why? So that when you hear it, you will what? Let me read it to you again. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe that I am he. So the scriptures were written ahead of time, beforehand, And Jesus predicted something ahead of time and beforehand so that when it does happen and when you do hear of it happening, you will believe. That's the whole essence of the scriptures, to build your faith so that you'll believe, that you won't believe in some man, you won't believe in some religion, you won't believe in some system. The scriptures were written ahead of time so that when it comes to pass, you'll believe. That's why Paul would say in another place, And again, even though we refer to the human authors, we're always referring, the Bible says, God writes through the human instruments. That's why he writes when he's writing to the Romans, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith and belief, they're synonyms. And it's the word of God that builds our faith through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's an important statement that Jesus makes here. He's telling us that he trusted the scriptures and believed in them. Today we refer to the scriptures as the Bible. And we believe, as Jesus did, in the authority, the inerrancy, and the plenary infallibility of the Holy Scriptures, that you can trust the translation of the Bible that you have in your hands today. Now, while many treat the Bible with reverence and awe, only true believers of Jesus submit their lives to the very teachings. Only true followers of Jesus allow this book to dictate the direction of their lives so that when they come to, the, to, to a crossroads in their life and a difficulty in their life and they come to a question in their life, when we come to these things and we open up the Bible, we simply say, whatever the Bible says will overrule me. That's the pathway of truth. Otherwise, otherwise, for those of you that are, that, that, really aren't willing to let the Bible rule your life, that aren't, willing, aren't really re- willing for the revelation of God to direct your life, you're creating your own religion that supersedes the, the words of God. Who wrote the Bible? God. So many are quick to dismiss as you're sharing with people, you know, they'll say, uh, you know, only men wrote the Bible. And they get this picture of, of uh, you know, five or six men around a campfire writing the Bible. 
But it's so impossible for that to be to be to take place. As we learned previously in many different studies, the Bible says in, of itself, it's a it's quite the claim, isn't it? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. How much of the Bible was written by God? All of it. And it's all profitable. All of it, the, the parts that you are able to understand right away and the parts that cause a little digging and a little concern and questions. From Genesis to Revelation, what we refer to as the Old Testament and the New Testament, the black letters, the red letters. Do you know there's actually a movement today that says that the red letters are more important than the black letters in the Bible. But you know that the red letters were invented from some guy to help you understand that Jesus was speaking at that point. The Bible is the Bible, and it's valuable. There are greater movements. There's even a larger movement that says, you know what, we're a New Testament church. And what they mean by that is, we only study the New Testament and have no time for the Old Testament. Here's the problem. The entire Bible is inspired by God. And listen, let me just tell you right now. You will never fully understand the New Covenant until you understand the Old Covenant. You won't understand. You're like, what is this? What are the frame of references? As you read through, just, just, un, just go, oh, if, if you still doubt me, are you listening? And you're, we, we were a church like that. And you still, you're listening on the radio right now and you're wondering, wait a minute, if you, if you doubt this, open up the book of Matthew and just simply count how many times in order to assert his authority in teaching, Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament. Jesus, because of great value to him. Say, oh, it's one unit, complete. 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years. That would be one long campfire meeting. 1,600 years. David was a king, Moses a shepherd, Joshua a military general, Luke was a doctor, Matthew a tax collector. They wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents. And so... Endless arguments have been offered for the author of the book of Hebrews. But if you jump into the argument and stay there, even if we were to know the exact author of Hebrews, even if we knew if God gave us a divine revelation today of exactly who wrote Hebrews, it still will get you nowhere in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a secondary thing. It's not as important as you think it is. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, just, uh, Paul's writing to young Timothy, and he describes a people like this. Listen, a people that are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just always learning, always into some new thing, always starting some new debate, starting some new podcast to make your point and argue with this and call. Listen, listen. as one author put it, Michael Wells, and I quote, Much knowledge has no practical application to the hearer's lives. As I look at my study Bible, I notice that there's one full page devoted to the authorship of Isaiah. Was it one author or two? There's another page devoted to the authorship of Hebrews. Was it Paul or Barnabas? Considerable time was spent on the research, and no doubt the most brilliant scholars were utilized. But why? Are these things that concern the defeated who are in bondage? 
Do they carry significance for the oppressed Christian in China, the brother imprisoned in Nepal for baptizing a man, the Indian sister who does not have a meal this night, or even for you? Let me ask that again. Are these the things, the author of Hebrews or the author of Isaiah, do they carry significance for the oppressed Christian in China today? Do they carry significance for the brother in prison in Nepal for baptizing a man? Do they carry significance for the Indian sister who does not have a meal this night? Does it carry significance for you? I mean, if you were able to leave here today and the revelation of God just, just totally says, now you know um, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. How's that going to change your life? What will it do to change your life? I mean, it's good to know. And the study is good. But why? Why? Why the debates and why the arguments? He goes on to say, the church is cluttered. Listen, this is what caught my eye in the quote. The church is cluttered with shipwrecked scholars who thought the Bible was written for understanding and did not recognize it was written to give life. The church is cluttered with shipwrecked scholars. And I would even say this, shipwrecked pretend scholars as well who are so caught up in knowledge and forget that knowledge puffs up, but it's love that edifies. Now, I spent a lot of time looking at this, and I've come to conclusions, but I know this conclusion is more important, and that is when we come to the Word of God, we come for life. We come for life. We open it to hear from our Father. We open the Bible so that we might grow in His Son. We turn to the Scriptures so we might be reminded of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We're not only interested in information. So we want to balance this teaching because we're not anti-information. You know, it comes, our, the Bible study comes to you today from someone that spends most of their life studying the Bible. I mean, that, that's where most of my, especially now when it comes to Hebrews, this is no easy book to study, let me tell you. When we were going through John, it was narrative, and we could follow along like we were following Jesus, but Hebrews is a little tougher to study. And so I'm not anti-information, and I'm not anti-getting to the root of the matter and the truth, because it's the truth that'll set you free. But how many, even you listening to me today, are so caught up in information, but you, leave, you live a defeated, discouraged life that does not reflect the power of God in your life. You're not experiencing the abundance of life that Jesus promised. Jesus promised abundant life. The church can't give that to you. A pastor can't give that to you. Jesus said that I want to give you rest for your souls. And so what I find is a lot of folks are caught up in knowledge, always learning, always learning, and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You know, test me on this, would you, church? Test me on it. Decide this week to go down to one of the hospitals that's closest to you, or one of the convalescent homes that's right around the corner from your house, and go in and say, I'm a, I'm a person that loves God, and carry your Bible with you and say, I would just like to visit anybody that wants a visitor, anyone that doesn't have family, Anyone that's alone, and you know the nurses, they'll tell you who hasn't gotten any visitors. You'd be surprised how many open doors will be if you just walk through the door. How many people in the hospital are waiting for you? 
And, and come to them and say, I just studied, you know, we just study as a church. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. We just study in the church. And we went through all of the things about the author of Hebrews. And I just want you to know, sick one today. I just want you to know, lonely one today. I just want you to know, just so you can have a nice, peaceful sleep, that so-and-so is the author. Where do you think that's going to lead? How much hope are you going to bring to a person's life? But open up the Bible and say, you know, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that today if you'd believe in him, you wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And so they come back to you and they say, prove it to me. Prove it to me. And you say, well, one of the proofs I have for you today is that I'm here right now. And I'm here right now because God told me to be here. And you know how you've been waiting for a visitor for a long time and you've pretty much given up on visitors. And here God is showing you how much he loves you because I'm sitting right next to you, right next to you at your bedside. And by the way, Paul's the, Paul's the author of Hebrews or whatever, you know? Like what difference does it make? You see, we're in the last days. We're in the last days. And we can't value knowledge over love. We're not going to be anti-knowledge. We're not, we're not in a sense where we don't want to get to the root of things, but we also want to be at the place where there's some things that are just going to be unanswerable. And if you argue about them the rest of your life, at the end of your life, you're going to look back and see what a waste. God hasn't called us to argue. He's called us to love. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and there is freedom. The Bible was given for life, gang. It was given for your life, that you might live an abundant life. We can't just be interested in information alone, but we have to be open for transformation. Even as Marie and I were talking today about some things, we were reminded that God is transforming us by what? The renewing of our mind. They both come together. He's transforming us. There's an inward change going on in our lives. And arguing and fighting about things are just not going to get you where you think you need to go. And there isn't going to be life being lived in your particular home. Nothing less will do but transformation. We can know a million things correctly, but never be touched or changed by God. We could be known as we are the theologically perfect church, and every message is like going to seminary and never have a life change. Churches like that are still filled with broken marriages. They're still filled with, with hurting kids. They're still filled with grief and difficulty, even though they might have all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted because it's not just information. It's transformation. The Word and the Spirit. The Spirit of God and the Word. And you can just know where you land in all of it by how much you argue with people about things that don't matter. Things that don't matter. You take this view over here and this view over here and you argue. I'm not speaking about taking a stand and a theological stand and just saying that's who I am. That's okay. We're, gonna, we're different and we're going to view things. One of the surprises of heaven is in the instant we wake up in his presence, he's going to explain it all to us and I think our response is going to be, oh man, that's good. I wish I would have got that when I was living. That's good, Lord. You're good. He's going to clear all that stuff up for us. You see, the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and every subsection of religion 
is this area. It's religion, it's shadows, it's rituals, that we can even do something for the right reasons and the right motives and still miss Jesus Christ, our Messiah. The word was given to give life. Psalm 119 verse 50 says, this is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Well, pastor, with all that in mind, who do you believe wrote the book of Hebrews? <laughs> I believe Paul wrote it, and I believe Luke translated it into Greek. And I believe if I'm wrong, the book still stands on its merits. And we're going to study it, asking God to change our hearts and our minds and to make us most useful for the gospel, to impact our world with the love of Jesus Christ. But that's, what I, that's where I fall. The style of the book sounds like a Pauline epistle. You can compare it to some of the others, where he shares doctrine first and then application. But even so, we still want the Lord to speak. Let me, let me show you one thing of what Peter believed about this book. Would you, uh, what, what Peter saw about Paul, would you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? Of course, you guys that studied Peter with us, you're familiar with this passage. But let me just show you one thing as we head out. And you kind of chew on and start reading the book, start reading the chapters. We'll, we'll go a little bit slow in the beginning. But look at what, look, look uh, let's, let's be reminded of what Peter had to say about Paul's teachings in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 15. Actually, let's go to verse 14 for the context of the sentence. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as, are, as also our beloved brother, what does your Bible say? Paul. So now he's talking about Paul. He's a contemporary. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, look, speaking in them of these things in which are some things are hard to understand. I think that's a possible reference to the book of Hebrews. Some things that are hard to understand, which those that are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. And so Hebrews, we're gonna tackle some things hard to understand. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, He's going to lead us and guide us and speak to us. So I hope you're ready. Read ahead. Allow the Spirit of God to minister to you even before you get here. And we'll do another introductory study next time. And then we'll jump into some of the text uh, in, our, in our studies as the Lord allows. So Father, thank you for this insight as you launch us off into such a glorious book of the Bible. I mean, what book of the Bible isn't glorious, God? That you would bring us from shadows to substance. And, and Lord, we, God, we, we, we simply do not want to be stuck in religion and formalism and, and those things that would hold us back from a true, real relationship with you. We look forward, Lord. I'm, I, I'm so excited about what you have in store in this book, both for me and for us, in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. 
That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.